Good day, everybody. Thanks for listening to our podcast of Beyond 911. If anybody has any questions about any of the podcasts, or if you have an idea of a podcast, please email us at beyond911 at peelpolice.ca. Looking forward to hearing your feedback. Good afternoon. I'm Sergeant Joe Cardi from Peel Regional Police. And today, I think this is going to be my favorite podcast because I'm all about real stories from real officers, and this is going to be a real story. Today, we have a, our guest is Constable John Allen. He's 13 years on with Peel Regional Police. He started his career in uniform working at 22 Division. He also worked in domestic violence as the coordinator there, and currently he's in a criminal investigation Bureau at 22 Division. Welcome, John. Thank you. And why I think this is a special one, because this one, like I just met John recently, and uh, this this is going to be a difficult podcast, because this podcast, this officer was um, ambushed and shot in the line of duty in 2015. And today, we're going to talk to him about this. We're going to talk about the incident. We're going to talk about PTSD. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about how to deal with adversity. Because when you're a police officer, we all know we're taught to run towards the trouble, not to run away from it. And that's what this officer did that day. And we're going to talk all about it. So let's get right into it. But before we start with the questions, there's this little audio that we have here at Peel that... um, John, I know you're a part of, and it's basically the event. And I, I want, to me, it's really powerful, and I want to start the podcast with this. Could we, could we put that uh, thing, our event on right now? It was a Friday night. It was the last night of our set. I remember driving down McMurchy Avenue, just passing Memorial Arena when uh, dispatch went over the air, someone to take a unknown 911. I piped up and told her to put me on it. I pulled up in front of the house. There was this guy standing on the top of the driveway with his face covered. As he saw me, he started walking away. So I yelled out to him, hey, buddy, get back here. And that's when he stopped, stared at me, pulled out a gun and started shooting. I knew I was in trouble. I thought I was gonna die. He was adamant, he just kept shooting. The cruiser was pelted with numerous bullets. There was holes throughout the the door and the frame. And as I was put in the car and park, a bullet went right through my arm. Another one tore through the shell of my vest. I was able to put the car in drive with my left arm, drove off. As I rounded a corner, I was able to hit my 1033 on the MDU. Uh-huh. Sergeant 22 Delta 9 call. Sergeant 22 Delta 9. Sergeant 22 Delta 9 call. Sergeant 22 Delta 9. I'm going to shoot it! You're 20? 1033 unless Sergeant. I lost control of the vehicle and took out a stop sign and 
brought the car to a stop around the corner, and that's when my partner, second unit, showed up. 22 Delta, he's been shot. So we're at Hood and Lockwood. Time for all units, any available units, to attend Hood and Lockwood. 139, show me heading up. 22 Bravo, can you put me on that? ET on the ambulance. No one's starting to go in out of consciousness. I only heard that a couple of times, and to me, it just gets the hair standing on my neck. That's very powerful. And um, your career, you 13 years on, like I said, we're not here to talk about your cases. We're not here to talk about your domestic violence. You know that's important. I want to basically, you're, I invited you here to, show, to tell people, tell the audience what it's like on that day and what you had to go through, and that's what I'm going to focus on. So I'm going to get right into it. Uh, from just hearing that clip, sounds like you're in the ambulance right now. Are you conscious, unconscious? And, and if you are conscious, what are you thinking? Well, that was my first time in an ambulance, and uh, the pain was just starting to get pretty intense. Uh, I remember it was really cold, and I was shivering. Uh, one bullet had gone through my arm, and the other one tore through the front of my vest. And uh, the paramedics, they had to check to see if they second shot had gone through my vest and hit me so they cut my shirt off in the ambulance and the doors were open and I was freezing cold uh, but the paramedics did a great job they put me at ease right away and told me that the bullet went right through the arm and right through the bone and uh, they could see the entry and exit point so uh, luckily the bullet wasn't lodged in there but uh I was really concerned that, uh, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen because my arm looked terrible and uh, I was going to lose it. Were you in, were you in pain right at that moment? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, this might sound like a, like a dumb, stupid question, but that's the type of guy I am. What does it feel like to be shot? I think that's what people would really like to know. Well, because it happened so fast, it took a few seconds to process what had happened. I just saw him pull out the gun and point it at me, and then I heard and felt my cruiser being pelted with these with bullets. So um, I was then hit with this sudden burst of pain, and my arm went my arm went limp. You know, I, I thought for a minute that my arm was shot off from the elbow down because I couldn't feel it or or move anything. There is just no feeling there, but uh, the pain didn't really set in until that fear and adrenaline went away. Uh, that's when I felt like I was about to pass out because at that point I saw my blood and it was starting to pool a bit at the, uh, in the cruiser, and uh, I knew it wasn't good. But uh, the pain went, got worse as, it, as time went on. Now, I know in, in the clip it says that you, you drove off, you are able to, to do that. Is that because of your training or just fighting to want I want to live. I want to be part of something. Yeah, that's just, you know, I, at that point, I couldn't return any fire because that's my firing arm um, that went, uh, that was injured. So I, I didn't have any choice there. I had to throw the car in uh, drive with my left arm and uh, just get out of there. That saved you. Yeah. Now, it was your left arm that got shot. Uh, it was my right. right sorry, right arm. Yeah. Right arm that got shot. Because your, your injuries. 
my right humerus was uh, shattered just above the elbow. I went for surgery right away and had uh, two stainless steel rods put in. Uh, and they had to perform a nerve transposition, which is uh, where the nerve, all the nerve had to be uh, repositioned. Um, and although the bullet went right through my arm, there were several bullet fragments that uh, had to be removed as well. Um, they got most of the bigger pieces, but there's still a few smaller ones floating around in there that I can't get out. But uh, for the most part, I'm doing really well. Uh, unfortunately, about a year and a half ago, I started experiencing some nerve issues, and I'm uh, currently seeking some treatment for that, but uh, still trying to find out what's causing that pain. When I hear, when I hear this, it's, it's amazing, because uh, like, I'm an officer, and let's be honest, you're, you're the only person I've ever met that's been shot, thank God. Um, when I watch a movie, or a TV show, I always see cops getting shot and next next scene they're wearing a bandage on their arm and they're performing their duties. I, I know it's not like that. And I guess you obviously went, went through it. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, well, how many months before you return to work? What's the rehab? Like, what's, like, this is not something that happens overnight. So this is like a long process, I'm assuming. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you that question. So when you... When you get shot and you're at the doctor's the next day, do they put you on a schedule for rehab? Um, do they give you specific exercises? Do you have to go for secondary surgeries? Or is it like the movie with your arm back a week later on a duty? No, well, it's, uh, I, I'm back to work now, but I, w I was off for nine or ten months. Uh, the first month um, after the shooting was probably the most difficult because I didn't know uh, what was going to happen. You know, I still uh, didn't have any feeling in my arm, and I could barely move it. Um, and during my, my first follow-up with the surgeon, um, I asked how long he thought it would be before I'd regain feeling and strength in my arm again and uh, be able to return to work. And, and uh, he said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, you know, John, have you thought about a career change? And, uh, and that was tough to hear because it's something I never considered. I, uh, I thought that with time, my arm would heal and I would be back to normal. So uh, that sat in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, but I had so much support from my fellow officers that uh, I knew I'd return one day. I wasn't going to let uh, some scumbag end my career by shooting me. Uh, everyone kept me positive and were so encouraging. And you know, on that night of the shooting, uh, when I think about uh, the bravery shown by all the men and women of our service, that's uh, incredible. You know, um, there was an active shooter that night trying to kill an officer, and uh, nobody hesitated to come to my rescue. You know, hearing, hearing that recording, uh, when I hit my uh, 1033, you know, the cavalry was on their way. And uh, I played that tape over and over, and, and everyone, including our amazing communicators and dispatch, uh, all did a great job that night, and uh, I had no doubt I'd be back. Um, as far as rehab, uh, rehab is ongoing. I've never gained 100% strength back in my arm because uh, the arm is literally being held together by two rods. And uh, I'll forever be limited with what I can lift. But you're on active duty right now. I am. Um, and I do have enough strength to return to work. Um, but in general, it's, you know, I'm still doing 
I've still got to do physio because uh, of the nerve issue I'm having, and you know, it may require some more surgery. But uh, you know, we're still trying to confirm the cause of that pain. But you know, considering everything, with the damage and all the with the bone uh, being completely shattered, I'm doing pretty well. So when the doctor tells you, "Hey, it's time for a career change," I know the doctor's not trying to be mean, not to be rude, but I must put your mind like, "What am I going to do?" Or were you totally, you know, what this ain't stopping me? I'm going to become, I'm become back a police officer. I was adamant to come back. Like I, I couldn't think of doing anything else. You know, there was so much other stuff going on. Um, you know, I, 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 I never considered it. So 10 months before you came back. It's yep. a lot of rehab. Yeah. Are you going once, twice a week, three times a week? Because you're always at home daily working on that arm? I was going yeah, two, three times a week for quite a few months. You know, started at, you know, just being able to lift half a pound and gradually up to uh, about 25 pounds. And, you know, that's when I'm starting to feel that, that's like the max I can probably do these days with, uh, with my one arm for feeling it. So it's safe to say, even though you're you're functional, you'll never be back to normal. Correct. Yeah. So what? When someone goes through something like this, like what you just went through, some people will give up and go, "Oh my God," and feel sorry for themselves. And I liked your attitude by even after what the doctor said to you. But what was, what what got you motivated to just keep going through this? Well, about a year and a about a year into rehab, I hit a plateau. Uh, where I found I wasn't gaining any more strength, and that was pretty discouraging. So I, I pushed myself. Uh, I set a goal where I would um, at least gain enough strength and ability to do something that uh, I love to do, and, and that was to kayak again. Uh, years ago, I took up kayaking while in the Yukon, and I wanted to reach that physical, physical ability again. So uh, with the help of my physiotherapist, uh, we worked at it, and uh, a year and a half later, I found myself uh, kayaking out in Sweden on the Baltic Sea. So uh, it was the motivation I needed. It was uh, it was great. Um, so you're a big kayaker, and that's your sport. Uh, that was one of them, yeah. <laughs> and uh, while I was out there, I uh, took uh, an outdoor survival course, and uh, lived off the grid for five days in northern Sweden. So I found finding. You know, setting specific goals was a huge motivating factor for me. Someone, um, I won't mention names here because they're gonna they're gonna leak something. One of your accomplishments, and I uh, want to talk about. And uh, don't be shy, and because uh, I know it's true, and I want to know more about it. Because when I did some research on this, this is how I found it out through your uh, your peers, Mount Kilimanjaro. Am I pronouncing that right? Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro, yeah. Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the reason why I bring that up, because they told me to, um, they advised me that you climbed it. And it's a big mountain. I did my uh, research online. It's a big mountain. It's one of the biggest in the world. And from my understanding, like uh, 20 people die each year trying to climb that mountain. How does this come about? Here you are. You get shot, and now your friends are telling me that you did this. Well, a few weeks before the shooting, I was talking to a friend about Mount Everest and climbing to base camp. And uh, after my trip to Sweden, I began uh, thinking about what I wanted to do next. So uh, physically, I had some concerns about Everest just because the technical aspects of the climb and not uh, holding up to the physical level required that you need to... uh, 
summit there. So I started doing some research on uh, Kilimanjaro. And uh, at that point in my recovery, I realized just how fortunate I was and uh, overwhelmed with so much support from my peers. And I wanted to uh, uh, pay it forward. So I dedicated the climb to uh, raise some awareness and uh, funds for uh, first responders who suffer from PTSD and operational stress injuries. That's, um, that's, so this is, you're raising awareness for PTSD, uh, for injuries to climb a mountain. That's not easy to do. Um, before I even get to the PTSD and all that great work you're doing, I want to get back to you and like, can anyone just go and climb this mountain or do you have to train for this? Do you have to, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I never did mountain climbing. I don't know if you did before the injury. Well, it's Kilimanjaro. It's a very long trek. It's a hike. It's not, it's not really technical. Um, I don't, you know, um, probably about 70% people that try it, uh, is it success rate? Um, but on that, you know, you meant it's about, you know, one person dies a month each month, uh, trying to climb it. And it's usually altitude related. Um, I did a lot of training. I did hours of hiking in the summer and tons of snowshoeing in winter. Um, I also did a lot of stairs going up and down the, uh, uh, Niagara escarpment. Well, it's not easy to do. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend anyone to do this. You got to train for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the, the mountain itself is, uh, almost 20,000 feet, uh, 19,341 to be exact. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's the height of uh, about 10 and a half CN towers. So uh, I couldn't really train for that type of altitude, but, uh, I went out West and did some hiking in Alberta. Uh, but again, the highest elevation I could reach out there was about 8,000 feet. So why do all these people fail and you're able to do it? Is it just determination or uh, you know what training? determination? And you know a lot of people fail because of the altitude sickness, for sure. Um, a lot of people try to climb it without letting their bodies acclimatize and uh, end up suffering from hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen to the brain. Oof. Can I say it's like a dormant volcano, basically this mountain? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think it last erupted. 200,000 years ago or something oh, like that. Okay, yeah. dormant. It's, uh, I know it's, the mountain is one of the seven summits of the world, and it's in Africa, and uh, the mountain's on the equator, so it must have been pretty hot climbing up there where you're wearing your sandals and shorts. I know, I'm just kidding there. You must have the good shoes on. But it's, uh, I guess it's easier when it's in the heat. Uh, I don't know. Don't well, know where I'm going with that question. But. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you definitely have to prepare for everything. Um when you start out at the base, you're in this humid jungle surrounded by wild animals and exotic birds. And, you know, six days later after climbing, you're, you're up in this Arctic mountaintop. Wait, 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 wait. You're in the, so wait, it's cold. Yeah. When you get up, yeah. When you get to the top, it's just up to, it's, but it's you're covered in snow and ice. But isn't on the, it's in Africa, isn't it supposed to be hot? Yeah, it's, it's. So you have to carry winter gear. Like, what, what are you? You're in the bottom. You're wearing you're your dress. You got to be prepared for everything. Yeah, like I wow. said, you start out. You're it's you're hot. You're in shorts and hiking boots. And by the time you get to the top there, you're uh, full full winter gear head to toe. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I yeah. never. You know what? It's common sense when you think about it. Since I don't do mountain climbing, but it makes sense now. The higher you go, the colder it'll get. Oh yeah, I it, got it's uh, well below zero. You know, the nights are really cold, especially. Um, the higher you uh, you get, you got to sleep in layers of clothing and uh, in one of those you know sub-zero 
mummy sleeping bags that, you know, uh, it was cold. You wake up in the morning and your tent is covered in ice from uh, all the condensation Oof. freezing on it. Yeah. I think I'll stay doing my Netflix, Netflix <laughs> and chill. Um, how did you feel when you, when you reached the top of the mountain? Like that's, that's, that's a major accomplishment, something that not many, well, not many people can do or will do. Uh, tired. I was tired and relieved. Um, the most difficult uh, part I found was summit day because you, you climb about 5,000 feet in a short period of time, and uh, you have to do that in the middle of the night because uh, as you reach the summit, it gets steeper, and, and the ground is this fine mix of uh, volcanic rock and dirt. And uh, at night, the ground freezes, and it's much easier to gain traction. Um, but once the sun rises, that ground turns to this mush, and at that altitude, you're really struggling to breathe with a lack of oxygen, and exerting yourself at that point doesn't help. But uh, when you finally make it to the summit there, you have this huge sense of relief and accomplishment, and uh, it was an amazing feeling. You know, our, our group took a bunch of pictures, and uh, we didn't stay up there too long because of the uh, because people started to feel ill with the air it's so thin and the effects of uh, the altitude was taking a toll on us so we started making our way down and got some air it was a phenomenal experience you said before that you dedicated the climb to raise awareness for post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd and the operation of stress operational stress injuries which is great um I know you don't have to answer this question because I'm really going to put you on the spot here. And, and this, is, this is personal. Do you suffer from PTSD? No, I was, I was never diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, but the first week after the shooting, I was in a different place. Um, I, I'm sure I had, uh, you know, I'm sure I had a huge part, uh, a huge part of... Uh, I was on a lot of pain meds, and you know, I, I really wasn't in a clear state of mind for the first first week or so. Um, there are so many uncertainties in my health and my career. Um, but although although I wanted to go back to work, I didn't know uh, if I should, and if I did, at what capacity. So I wasn't sure how I'd react in uh, in another life-threatening situation but uh you know i i chose to speak to a professional and uh five years later i feel like a million bucks other than the nagging arm injury i know you're not a doctor but i know because of what you went through and you spoke to people and i think the, our audience could uh, learn a lot from, from here because i i can't bring much to the table on the on this is um i want what you think of this is because of what you went through what do you what is ptsd yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert in the condition, but, uh, you know, during my recovery, I learned that uh, PTSD is a psychological condition. Um, it develops after uh, experiencing some sort of traumatic event, such as, you know, being involved in a shooting or uh, being involved in an accident or uh, some other violent act like an assault. Um, also witnessing, witnessing death over and over or losing a loved one you know there are many things that can cause it and uh, if I'm not mistaken I believe you have to suffer from symptoms um, for a certain period of time before uh, an official diagnosis of PTSD is considered 
again, I know you're not a doctor, but just for the audience out there, because you, you have some knowledge on that and from the research you're doing. Um, and like you said, anyone could have PTSD. You don't have to be an officer. You could be someone who witnesses a car accident, for example. Um, what are the symptoms of PTSD? Uh, you know, reliving the event over and over, uh, having flashbacks, disturbing thoughts, nightmares, um, avoiding people and places, mood swings, feeling uh, negative, irritable, uh, hard time sleeping, um, constantly on guard. Um, you know, I, I definitely had my fair share of uh, those symptoms early in my recovery, but uh, I believe that because I spoke to professional, I, I avoided any long-term effects and uh, got on my way, you know, got on with my life pretty quickly. Um, not a single day has gone by where I don't think about the shooting, but uh, I've learned to deal with it, and uh, life goes on. Um, having said that, you know, the experience has connected me with uh, people who do suffer from PTSD, and I can tell you that uh, it is real, and it's something that uh, people need to talk about. Okay, so I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off there for a sec, because I know you, no, something in my head that when you said you reached out for professional support, um, are you comfortable to talk about it? And the reason why I'm saying that, because I don't think, I don't know if that's easy to do. If you're having a problem, everyone likes to, when they have a problem, I could solve it. I don't need to go to somebody. I don't need to see a psychiatrist. I don't need to see a doctor. I don't need to talk to my wife or my girlfriend or my neighbor. Um, you reached out. Was it, that something hard to do? For me, it was really, it was preventative. You know, I was, uh, I was encouraged by the service to speak to a professional right away. You know, I didn't uh, feel I needed to. But, and honestly, just to appease the people around me, I reluctantly did, and I don't regret it. You know, the, uh, the stigma associated with talking to a psychologist uh, was a concern for me at the time, but uh, it's no big deal. And, you know, after the shooting, I was approached by a few people who told me, you know, in confidence that they sought professional help after going through some hardships, and that was probably the deciding factor for me to, uh, to go on with it. So someone who listening to this podcast today is go, you think is going through PTSD or assumes they are, I, I, I guess the advice you would give them is to go seek professional help, talk to somebody? Talk to somebody, absolutely. No need to uh, suffer alone. Good way of putting it. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Are you the same person before you were shot? Uh, some people that have known me for a while uh, say that they've seen a change in me, but I don't think so. I do have a slightly different uh, look at life, I guess. I rarely hold back from doing things that I want to do. Uh, I've realized life's short, and uh, without taking irresponsible risks, I you have to enjoy life. So it did change you. It made you more adventurous. Uh, I guess. Climbing <laughs> mountains, the kayaking in Sweden. Was it Sweden? Yeah, Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would ask this question, especially your the people that know you would maybe know, but the ones who don't know you, did it change the way you do the job? Do you police differently? I can't say that I police any differently other than saying I'm probably more alert in certain situations, um, especially when dealing with uh, people where weapons are or could be involved. So, uh, but for the most part, I'd say no. It's uh, remarkable how you, you, over, you overcame all this and... Uh, it's adversity, and 
What does adversity mean to you? Uh, test question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's getting harder. Um, I Everyone who sits in your seats on the hot seat with yeah. me, I just, whatever comes in my head. I don't know if I know if it's the right answer, but I'd, uh, I'd say uh, dealing with a difficult situation and getting through a tough time by drawing from past experiences, not giving up. Okay. Um, not giving up. So is it, is it adversity similar to hardship or does hardship build character or does adversity build character? Like how do we? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, part of the survival course, uh, I was on in Sweden had me, uh, going from camp to camp. Um, trekking through this forest without the use of any uh, electrical aids, no GPS, digital maps, nothing, just a, a paper map and a compass. And uh, one day I went off course by about uh, 10 kilometers and got lost. Uh, at one point I came across this uh, log home on a dirt road, tried to ask for directions, but uh, people didn't speak English. They couldn't help me. So I had no clue where I was and uh, started to panic a bit. Long story short, eventually, and I don't know how, I found my bearings and made it back to camp. Uh, two weeks later, I'm back home, and I'm enrolled in school at Humber College. It was uh, the first day, and I decided that uh, I'm going to take public transit to save a few bucks on gas and parking. And uh, Are you trying to tell everyone here you're cheap? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? I have to. <laughs> well, so I get in this TT bus or TTC bus or streetcar, uh, whatever it was, and I think I missed my stop. And I'm already a little nervous because I haven't been to school in years, and I don't really know where I am. I don't recognize any buildings. Uh, again, I, I feel lost, and I have a million things going through my head, so I start to panic a bit. Um then I stop and think about, you know, where I was two weeks ago, lost in a Swedish forest with nobody to talk to, no one to communicate with, and I just had a laugh because the situation I was in, it was nothing. It was a bit of fear and panic because I wasn't 100% sure where I was, but um, I was home, and, you know, in the end, it was, it was nothing. I just, you know, I asked the bus driver, I'm like, hey, how do I get to Humber? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's two stops from here, man, and you'll be there in a minute, but... You know, just going through being lost the first time in a more serious situation, it just kind of, you know, you get over it a lot easier. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I see I, I see how you said it. You it's, said it really It's well. stupid, but it's a, it's a way of example of drawing from past experiences, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's like me when I go to Ikea, if I get lost in there. There you go. <laughs> We're not going to go there. there. Uh, more on a serious note, because I think this is, um, there's a lot to learn from, from you is, uh, what would you say to someone who you know is suffering from from mental illness or PTSD but doesn't want to get help? I, I'd probably ask, you know, if, if you weren't feeling physically well, if your body had aches and pains, would you go see a doctor? And, you know, not feeling mentally well should be the same way. You know, it doesn't hurt to talk to somebody. you got to look after your, your mind as well. I know we, we kind of touched on this, that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And I'm hoping the answer will prove the opposite, like you already, which you already did. Uh, but 
can, can would you agree with this statement? Um, just from talking to you now, and it, it hit me. I never really thought of that this way, and I always thought the opposite, maybe because of my uh, Burt Reynolds upbringing where you have to be macho. But asking for help, is that actually a sign of strength? Because I know when I grew up, it wasn't. But I think the way I grew up was wrong. You you do, like, the, the Burt Reynolds lifestyle, which the machoism is, I don't know if it's, I think you should ask for help. I think you changed me a lot in this podcast. Well, we got time. We got another quick story for you. Oh, this plenty was of time. Presented uh, on my on, on the Bellets Talk Day uh, presentation a year and a half ago. Um, back to Kilimanjaro. Before uh, before climbing, uh, we had a pre-climb briefing um, where we were advised by the guides that they were going to be monitoring our health as we um, climb the mountain, and uh, they're going to be watching for. Uh, signs of um, altitude sickness or hypoxia again, which which is basically again the lack of oxygen to the brain. You know their concern is that someone dies each month trying to climb it. So during this daily briefing, uh, you know we were told that you know if the guides felt we should descend, then you know go back down, then we'd we'd have to descend because you know, they know the signs of someone who probably won't make it to the summit and they'd probably be putting their life at risk if they continued. Um, so during the climb, every day uh, before dinner, we would uh, report for a medical where they would check our vitals, check our blood pressure, check our blood oxygen levels, our temperature, uh, as well as recording our... Uh, food and fluid intakes uh, just to make sure we were eating and drinking enough um, we were also we also had a rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how we felt with regards to the altitude symptoms with you know 10 feeling the best and uh, you know some of the symptoms were uh, include sickness um, headaches vomiting dizziness stomach pain soreness of breath you know they wanted to get a reading for how we felt um so as we got higher you know i started to experience mild symptoms but i didn't want to admit it because everyone else in the team was reporting that they were feeling a 10 and how are you feeling i was afraid that you know if if i would say that i was feeling ill that they would send me down and true and i'd lose everything so on on day five we break through the clouds at about 12,000 feet and I start getting a little concerned with the headaches and shortness of breath I was feeling. Um, and I had a terrible sleep that night and uh, I felt like I was just being squeezed around my chest. So during the next medical check, I was the first to admit that I wasn't feeling well and I said on a scale of 1 to 10, I was an 8. And Everyone stopped and stared for a second, but uh, then one by one, others after me started to admit they weren't feeling well. And I was so relieved to see that I wasn't alone. You know, someone someone told me after that, if I hadn't been the first to admit it, you know, they wouldn't have followed. And so now, with the guides knowing that we were all feeling the effects of the high altitude uh, 
they started to change our routines. They had us drinking some more water. They uh, adjusted our thiamox, which is a medication for altitude. Um, and we increased some exercises to acclimatize to the higher altitude. And, uh, and we all felt better, and we all made it to the summit. And, you know, it was just amazing how starting that conversation encouraged others to start talking and uh, and open up you know on on Kilimanjaro admitting we weren't well was the first step in getting better and down here it's no different wow very inspirational um you are very inspirational John I'm going to tell you something that you may not know I first met you I guess 2017 I don't know if you recall this this was um our training for use of force where we do scenario based training and we're and basically with the, for the audience the training's about uh we get in a situation where we have actors and they'll be in a situation where they'll shoot at us they'll be not it's just to get us better so we could be better officers and we all get our turns and i remember sitting in the gym because i was um in line to go next with my partner uh I, yes it was Stu proctor we're sitting there in line and we're talking about, oh, they're going to probably come out of the and shoot us. And I'm going, ah, no one knows what to do in a gunfight. And you're sitting there all there in the quiet in the corner. And I never saw you before. I knew the officer, John Allen, never met him, who got shot. And while we're talking, you just spoke up. And you just said, let your training take over and you'll be fine. And I look over and I go, who is this clown? <laughs> and I go, what? And you go, yeah, you could never possibly train for everything you do the best you can and the more training you are you do better which is very wise and going like yeah and he goes when i when you go when i was shot i go you were shot and you said yeah i was shot like uh, a year and a half two years ago and i go that can't be because it's why you're here at work why you're training and i go you're john allen and you went yeah and i started singing the story the song <laughs> johnny we're sorry won't you come i don't remember that yes I and do. that was to bring humor to it and i'm going how oh. i was so inspired that you shot in the line of duty, ambushed, like discarded to like for the for the for that bad guy to leave you to, to, to die, and you're back at work already. And you didn't even phase, you didn't blink, you go, That's my job to serve the community. I was inspired that day. Yeah, no, no doubt I was I was uh, I was definitely coming back. And I, I know everyone thinks I wing these podcasts, but I, do, I really do some research sometimes. That's how I knew you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro. That's it. Yeah. Whatever, if I pronounce it, go by him, don't go by I'm saying it. But I also know something else. Um, every May, our service and our community might notice this, that we wear green epaulets. And I'm going to let you tell the story because I, I know it because I did my research. <laughs> You're trying to think I wing things. No, no, I do my research. What's our green epaulets all about? All right, so uh, May, the month of May was uh, Mental Health Awareness Month and uh, Peel Beyond the Blue along with uh, the service brought the green epaulet campaign to uh, Peel to get people talking about mental health. And I know it's called Beyond the Blue. And what is Beyond the Blue? I know a lot about this one. I did my research. <laughs> so uh, Peel Beyond the Blue is a, uh, they're a nonprofit 
organization that uh, supports the spouses and families of law enforcement. Uh, there are several chapters throughout Canada, and uh, they they understand the unique circumstances that families of officers face, um, and they uh, they offer resources and run different workshops for uh, uh, the members throughout the year. Okay, I'm just going to get ready to do it because you're seeing you, you don't you're not going where I want you to go. Mm-hmm. I understand your wife's a part of Beyond the Blue, yes. which is remarkable. <laughs> yes, my uh, wife Caitlin is uh, president of the Peel chapter. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, and along with uh, Vice President Karina DeCampo Nash, they they started the chapter here last year and are uh, doing a phenomenal job. And how did your wife get involved in this? Um Beyond the Blue, which is an amazing organization. Uh, again, uh, Canada Beyond the Blue. So they, Canada Beyond the Blue was expanding, and Caitlin was asked if she w- was uh, interested in starting a Peel chapter. And, uh, you know, once she learned what they were all about, she jumped at the opportunity because, you know, Caitlin knows firsthand the uh, unique needs and support a, you know, a spouse of an officer faces. So uh, she's been through the ordeal of, you know, getting that knock on the door in the middle of the night and saying, you know, your husband's shot, so she, she knows what it's about. Um, you know, Caitlin and uh, Karina, they, they're both very passionate about uh, Beyond the Blue. And, and it shows, you know, they, uh, you know, during this applet campaign, they sold uh, over 630 sets of green applets, which uh, speak volumes for their dedication. So along with uh, the support of org wellness uh helping to get the word out there uh they did an amazing job so good job to all that's amazing for all the officers out there who don't know about this program because uh we're always busy working or just remember when you see the green epaulets look do your research buy a pair this helps so many people um i got a pair and uh i know it's uh past may now but next may i'll be buying another pair to make sure i support this good cause um, like I say in every podcast, I'm from the Belle Provence, the Quebec. And in Quebec, we have something in my community, the Villa Salle. The key to talking to about a person and knowing about the person is knowing the garnishing on a hot dog tells a lot about a person. John, I'm going to ask you this strange question because okay. if you don't answer this right, because right now your stock's high with me, what garnishings do you like on your hot dogs? Everything. Well, what's everything? Lots of pickles. Pickles. Yeah, pickles, onions, mustard, sauerkraut. Oh, you just fully just smack everything. it all on there. Everything. So you have more garnishings than hot dog? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you a secret. The key to a hot dog, everyone could cook a hot dog. No, mm-hmm. one could, no one messes that up. The key is the garnishings. Yeah. And if you get the garnishing right, you get the perfect hot dog. Yeah. See, right now with, with you going overloaded, that tells me someone who's a, that just enjoys life. You're just slapping the Absolutely. mustard, you're putting the relish, the pickles, the coleslaw, <laughs> everything on it. But if you really want to impress someone with hot dog, because everyone in here in Ontario likes the ketchup, no. No ketchup required. Really? It's onion, mustard, coleslaw. You do that, you have the perfect hot dog. Trust right. me, try that. Try that this summer. You're going to be barbecuing hot dogs. You sounds, try that. Sounds gross, but I'll try it. <laughs> no, you're going to go, oh, my God, this is the best ever. So my audience, remember, the keto hot dog, garnishings, mustard, onion, coleslaw. That's all you need. All right. <laughs> John, this has been amazing, and I, I, I want to know, what is next for John Allen? Uh, well, uh, career-wise, I'm very content where I am right now. 
I uh, work with a great team at uh, 22 CIB and have uh, no plans on going anywhere anytime soon. Um, for, the, for the audience, CIB is the Criminal Investigated Bureau. Right. They do more like, for lack of better knowledge for external audience, major crime. Right. <laughs> but uh, as far as, you know, my next adventure, uh, I don't know. I'm thinking of heading to the Antarctic. What? Or, uh, yeah. Or maybe one day I'll make it to Everest. Who knows? How did you come up with that? Why can't you do something simple like go to Guelph and go in a swimming pool this summer? That's, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I need more than that. Uh, I, I admire you. That's something I couldn't do. I admire you. I really appreciate you being here today because what you um, brought to the table is not many people could, would talk about. Um, what you went through uh, and where you are today is just inspirational. And for all the people out there, post, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you are suffering, do reach out. Don't need to be the macho guy. I, I think what you said it perfect, perfectly, don't suffer alone. Was that the phrase? Yeah, don't suffer alone. I think when you're with people, it's better that way. Um, anybody, our audience, uh, with any questions you want to do about our podcast or any ideas you want to see us talk about, you can email us all at any time at beyond911 at peelpolice.ca. And again, thank you, John Alwyn. It was a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you.